have a lot of experience in. Failure. Failure. And uh, no need to put your seatbelt on or get all uptight about it. We're going to talk about it in very honest and transparent, kind of adult ways. But at the same time, uh, we're not here to beat anybody up. Uh, this is an experience that all of us have been through. All of us know the pain, the disappointment, the discouragement that comes from personal failure. And I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about failure or not and for any length of time, beyond just thinking about your own personal failure and how you don't enjoy it, and somebody else's failure, how it impacted you. But not all failure is the same. I guess there's a lot of ways we could categorize the different types of failure. But for our purposes today, I want you to think about three different types of failure. All right? Three different types of failure that I bet everybody in the room has experienced. You may not use these words, but I bet you'll be able to relate to the concepts. The first type of failure that I want us to talk about today briefly is the failures that we experience around our personal effort. In fact, the video that you saw, the intro there, most of those failures were around some type of effort. Somebody put some effort to experience something, to accomplish something, to invent something, to write something, to play something. They put their effort in, and when they put their effort in, they didn't quite get the response, the result that they were hoping for. And so they failed. Thomas Edison, 10,000 different attempts to find the right filament for the light bulb, a filament that would not burn out and at the same time would give off enough light and not simply give off heat. 10,000 approximately different tries before he found it, the exact right element to make the filament in a light bulb with, all right? Michael Jordan, he put effort in to join the basketball team. He wasn't quite where he needed to be at that moment in his life. Maybe he had a bad day, who knows? His effort resulted in an experience that he didn't want for himself. Have you ever been there? I've been there, right? But that's not the only kind of failure there is. There are also a different kind of failure. We'll just call them, for our purposes today, mistakes. This isn't necessarily around just our effort we put in and a desired result we want from our effort. A mistake kind of failure is one where usually you have some misinformation. You need to take a test. It's a math test. In your mind, you think two plus two is five. And so the entire math test, you're operating on a principle, a mistaken uh, principle, a mistaken amount of information that 2 plus 2 equals 5. And so there's no surprise for those of us that know that 2 plus 2 is not 5, 2 plus 2 is 4. Then when you get your test back, and if you think 2 plus 2 is 5, you're going to have a lot of mistakes. And you're probably going to get an F on the test, right? A lot, of, a lot of our failures fall under the category of not effort we put in, but often misinformation that we have. And when we have that misinformation, we operate on those broken assumptions, those incorrect assumptions, and it produces some type of failure for us. Now, out of all the different types of ways we could talk about failure, these two right here, they bring a lot of pain, a lot of discomfort, embarrassment, they're not really the kind of failure I want to talk about today. There's a third category of failure, and you've experienced, if you've lived any length of time at all, if you're 15, 16, 30, 45 today, there's a different kind of failure that m all of us in the room have experienced. And again, you may not use this word, but you'll know what I'm talking about. Sin. Sin is the third type of failure I want us to briefly look at today. Sin is the type of failure that doesn't simply come because we put some effort in a specific direction, hoping for a specific outcome. It doesn't happen, and we're disappointed. Sin is different than a mistake because a mistake is built on some misinformation. We operate with that wrong assumption. It leads us down a wrong path. I'm not talking about the effort we put in and we don't get the result we want today. We, we'll manage that when 
with a few sentences in a moment. And I'm not talking about misinformation that causes us to make mistakes. Today, I want to talk about a much deeper type of failure. A type of failure that results in personal pain, difficulty, challenge, emotional distress. Often it doesn't only harm us, it harms others. When other people make these kinds of failures, these sins, it doesn't just harm them, often it harms us. And a lot of times with our sin, there is an associated guilt and shame. Now most of you walked into the room today at a church expecting that you might hear theological kinds of concepts like God and love and grace and and maybe sin. Maybe you expected when you walked in you would expect me to try to help you experience a little bit of guilt and shame. That's not where we're going today. I want us for the next few moments to take an honest look at a subcategory of failures that I believe is deeper and tougher to deal with than the kinds of failures I make when I put in effort and I don't get the results I want. The short answer for this type of failure is try again. (laughs) Get up, dust yourself off, try again. Evaluate if it's a goal worth trying over. If it is, try again. In fact, there's some kind of honor in giving effort to worthy goals even if you never fully succeed. And on mistakes, and when you make mistakes, often the mistake being made is the very thing that causes you to see your misinformation. You now have a heightened awareness. You're more eager and ready to learn. And so you learn new information. You no longer have the wrong assumption. You're no longer making mistakes off of that wrong assumption. A lot of times just correct information can fix mistakes. But when it comes to sin and the associated guilt and often shame, how do you, how do you deal with that kind of failure? I'm not talking in a cosmic theological way. We'll get to that in a moment. I'm talking about how do you deal in your own heart? See, all failure has a tendency to bring embarrassment, a certain amount of regret, a certain amount of challenge. We're going to try harder. We're going to learn some new stuff. But what happens when you had right information? You could have put effort in a different direction. But you chose to do a thing you knew you shouldn't do. You weren't misinformed. You knew it. Now, when we were kids, most of us, if you grew up in church at all, and even if you didn't grow up in a Christian church, you went to a mosque or a synagogue, the same concept's talked about. Um, you were given some kind of framework to understand it. You wrong somebody, you say you're sorry. In the, in the culture I grew up in, if we committed a sin, we asked God to forgive us. We had a way of kind of trying to deal with this stuff. And on a kid level, in kind of simplistic ways, it makes perfectly clear sense on how to manage it. You say you're sorry, you feel bad, you say a few words to some God you believe in, and it's all taken away. But today... I'm talking about a deeper kind of sin and its impact. Not the childhood thing where I went in my sister's room I wasn't supposed to. She got mad. She told mom. Mom made me apologize. I promised I wouldn't do it. And as soon as they turned around, I went in her room again. I'm not talking about that. Or, or <laughs> my dad was uh, you know, asleep and his wallet was on the dresser in his room. And I walked in while he was asleep and I opened it up. I took a $5 bill out and I put it in my pocket. I'm not talking about those kinds of things. I'm talking about a much deeper type of issue where we chose, 
we had right information. We put our effort behind things that weren't good for us, things we knew we should avoid. And when we did it, we did it with knowledge, intentionality, and it has left us feeling some guilt and shame. Here's my question today for you, the tension I feel. I think I know how to deal with this. I think I know how to deal with this. But what do I do with this? How do I manage? How do I understand? How do I perceive my failure? When it comes to my personal sin. Everybody at some point in their lives has asked this question. And again, maybe not in these terms, but what would it look like today if we looked again, not in a simply simplistic way, but in a clear and in an adult type of engagement about the issue of sin? Here's what I've discovered. When I was a kid, I had kid sins. When I became an adult, I had adult sins. My sins got bigger. I had greater capacity. I had greater intentionality. I had greater clarity. And as a kid, as now as I reflect on it, I kind of put all the stuff I did at up to some age, 16, 18, 20, under the category I was a kid, I was foolish. But now that I'm an adult and I know better, what do I do? How do I wash away that guilt and that shame? When I think about college, and man, for me, it was a great experience. I had so many wonderful things, made great friendships, encountered significant mentors in my life, people that influenced, influenced on my life well beyond the four years I was there. But there were a few moments in my college years that if I today think and reflect on them, even though they were eight years ago, <laughs> you're not going to let me get by, are you? <laughs> even though they were a couple decades ago, they still have a tendency to bring up guilt and shame. Now, I don't need to go into all my personal examples. I don't want you to going into yours. But the truth of the matter is, for some of us, there are whole seasons of life that we would love to go back and relive. College, that thing you did on the business trip, the first marriage, the engagement with your kid when they were going through the teenage years and how you responded and how you acted. What washes away, what takes away, what manages that type of failure? Is it simply more effort? Is it new information? Correct understanding? What manages that deep-seated sense of regret? How do I, how do I learn to live with it so that when it comes up, I'm not washed over with regret. I'm not washed over with the sense of my failure. On this one, I resign myself that I either can't do it or I pour on more effort and I achieve the thing. On this one, I keep learning and striving, trying to understand, and I press through. But I can't rewind a clock and take back choices I knowingly made. I can't undo the harm that it brought to me, the regret that it, and, and the harm that it brought to other people. No, I'm not saying all sins are the same in any sense of the word, 
I mean, there are some sins, some decisions I made in those periods of my life that I look back now and I laugh about them. I get with my buddies, we talk about the stupid things we did when we broke into the library, broke the law. It's one of my highlights of my life. I'm, I enjoy it. We get together, we talk about it. I'm not encouraging anybody here to do that, but it was a wonderful time. I remember breaking into a national park once. I didn't realize I was breaking into a national park. I kind of stumbled up on it and looked down the path. The moon was kind of over, you know, overcast by the, by the clouds, the moonlight was, and walking down a path, and I thought I saw a bear, so I said to my buddy, I think there's a bear, and the bear stood up, shining a flashlight in my eyes, and he said, I'm not a bear, I'm a park ranger, and you've uh, committed, a, committed a federal crime here, and I got nervous, peed my pants a little, and, uh, <laughs> but today, I, I kind of laugh about that sort of thing. That doesn't produce in me guilt and shame, right? But there are other experiences. What are you going to do with your sin, with your regret, with the mistakes you knowingly made? You had opportunity to change them. Sometimes you made them over and over again. You said you weren't going to do it again, and you find yourself doing it again. You made a promise to somebody, and you broke the promise, and you knew you were going to. You knew as it was happening you were doing it, and you did it anyway. And when you think about those things today, you want more than anything to make it go away. And yet there it is. What are you going to do to wash away guilt and shame? Here's what some of us do. We bury it in the sea of humanity. We, here's what you effectively say. I'm not perfect. They're not perfect. I'm like everybody else. Everybody's kind of done the same thing. Many people have, not everybody only, but the, you know. I'm no different than everybody else. And we try to put some kind of scale on it, and we say to ourselves, you know, I'm not perfect. We'll all agree to that. I'm not perfect, but I'm not so bad either compared to everybody else. It's kind of, and so we bury our feelings of guilt and shame, our sense of our own, you may not use this word, sin, and we just bury it in the sea of humanity, and we say to ourselves, I'm not all that different than everybody else, so we just kind of stuff it and bury it down. But the truth of the matter is that doesn't really work. At least, at least for me, and I, I bet I'm not alone in the room, it doesn't really work to simply do the equilibrium thing. There are still those things that when we look at it and if we'll allow ourselves to be honest, and some of us haven't been honest with ourselves in a long time because when we are, this stuff comes flooding back. But if we'll allow ourselves to be honest, we know that no matter what everybody else did, there came a moment when I was on my own, in my full head and knowledge, with full understanding what I was doing, at least enough to know I shouldn't, and I stepped across and I did the thing, or I didn't do the thing I said I was going to do, and I regret it, and I would love to undo it. And so instead of maybe just burying it into the sea of humanity and doing the equilibrium thing, we come up with all kinds of excuses. See if you can relate to any of these. These are ones I've used, some of them, not all of them. I was young. <laughs> I was young. When I do that, somehow, when I convince myself that I was young, it alleviates this pressure right here. When I look at myself and I think I want it, I can't believe I allowed myself to go there. I use the excuse of I was young, and somehow, at least momentarily, it makes me feel better. Or I was drunk, or I was angry, I was lonely. What did you expect? I was broke. I didn't know any better. Here's the thing about all those excuses we use. To some degree, they're all true. But acknowledging those things are true doesn't really take away the sense of regret and shame 
and guilt. Here's the issue, friends. The issue is forgiveness. And the issue, the issue is shame. The issue is debt. I feel as a result of these things that I've done knowingly many times, or at least knowing enough to avoid, I feel like I owe it to somebody now to fix it, to make it right. I'd love to go back and redo the thing I did with my child. I'd love to go back and have another chance to undo the thing I said to my wife. I'd love to go back and have a chance to not go to that place and do the thing I did. What we're really talking about here is how do you you forgive yourself? What we're really saying here is, is that I feel like somehow I've robbed myself. I've cheated myself. The things I thought were going to bring me satisfaction and enjoyment, it was momentary at best, but now... When I look at it, I have this regret. I have this sense that I owed it to somebody else or I owed it to myself to not have done that thing and I don't know how to pay the debt. I don't know how to make it go away. In the quiet of the night, it still haunts me. I'm not talking about going into my sister's room anymore when my parents told me not to. I'm talking about going into somebody else's bedroom. I'm not talking about taking $5 out of my dad's wallet. I'm talking about there's this thing at work and nobody was looking and I, I knew I could get away with it. And now I'm terrified that it's going to be exposed. But even more than just simply being exposed, I'm, I'm, I'm humiliated internally about me doing that thing and I'm, I desperately don't want anybody to know about it. That I can't go back and I can't undo it. I want to know what to do in the future to manage this stuff. And as you consider, as you might expect I would today, Christianity, this is a huge and enormous thought. But not just Christianity. Every single religion in the history of humankind throughout all of recorded history has dealt with this basic issue. They didn't always use this term, but they all tried to, on some level, and they do, try to manage this overwhelming sense of regret, pain, shame, debt. How do I forgive myself? How do I wash it? How do I make it go away? All religions have dealt with this. They all offer a solution to this dilemma. And many of you in the room have tried some various form of a religious engagement to wash away that sin. Christianity offers its solution. Christianity's solution is a little unique. Christianity's solution is the only solution offered by the religions of the world that I've been able to discern in my limited investigation, but when I've read others who've investigated far deeper than me, it's the only religion that deals with it this way. It, relig- this, this religion, Christianity says, that it isn't simply a system, a set of behaviors, a thought, a process you go through. Christianity is the only religion that has offered a person, not an experience, not a process, not a set of words, not a ritual, but a person to come and manage not his sin and guilt, but our guilt. Christianity is the only religion that I'm aware of in the pages of human history that says that there is a single person who says of himself, I am the solution 
to this sin dilemma. What can wash my sin? Religions, some of them say try harder. Others say separate from the world. Others say make restitution. Others say learn our code. Some say go through our ritual. Christianity says embrace a person. And the person himself is the very solution for the sin that you personally, internally, we don't have to convince you, would like to wipe away and have a clean start, have a fresh slate. Christianity offers the person of Jesus to say, I am the solution. Many of us in this room have done all we know to wash away our own sins. We've apologized, we've written letters, we've attempted to cover our bad with good. But Christianity offers a different way. I want to take you to the pages of the Bible and try to make this as crystal clear on how Christianity says we can deal with our personal sins. I'm not talking about our failures that came through wrong or misguided or unsuccessful efforts. I'm not talking about failures that came through misunderstandings. I'm talking about failure that we had some conscious knowledge of and chose to engage or disengage anyway. And it has left us feeling a sense of debt. And we feel like we owe it to ourselves and to the people around us. We feel cheated in some way because we can't make it go away. And so in your Bible, in the Gospel of John, if you have your scriptures, go there. The words will be on the screen. John, the writer, tells us about a different kind of John. There are two Johns in John's gospel. There's John, the writer. But in the first few pages of his book, there's another John, a guy by the name of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist isn't the Baptist because he's not a Presbyterian or a Methodist. He's John the Baptist because he baptizes people. And so in John's gospel, he tells us about John the Baptist and the activity he used to do. And John the Baptist day, if you wanted to change religions, if you wanted to get a fresh start, the Jewish faith, the culture that he was surrounded with, would encourage you to go through a ceremonial washing. You would go to the priest, you'd talk about your thing. They'd say some words over an animal and do a few activities, and then the priest would look at you and he would say, now go wash. And you would go through a ceremonial ritual. They used the word baptism for that. You would go to your home, and you would go through this ritual, or you would do it in the temple. You would go through this ritual, and you would ceremoniously wipe the sins, wash the sins away. John the baptizer came around, and he modified it slightly. John the baptizer would take people, and instead of telling them to go wash, he would grab them, and he would take them under, under the water, completely submersing them, not just a part of their body, but completely submersing them, and bring them up, indicating that their willingness to be forgiven and their willingness to trust God would wash away their sins. And so John writes about this. Now we get a little snapshot in one of the other Gospels just to give you a framework of how popular John's teaching was as people in that time tried to manage how to deal with their sin, get rid of their guilt and their shame, and come to terms with their own sense of debt. Mark chapter 1, verse 5 tells us this about John the Baptist. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, to John. The whole countryside and all the people of Jerusalem. Now, I think this might be hyperbole. It could be completely literal. I think it might be in the same sense as my daughter saying to me, all the folks, everybody's going to be at the party. And of course, I would say, I don't think the president's going to be there. So no, everybody's not going to be at the party. 
right? But she was trying to make the point that so many people are coming. I, I think that, that Mark's trying to make the point that John was a very popular guy. His message was popular. When people heard John speak, they had something inside them say, I hope it's true. I hope it deals with. I want to get rid of this. I want to wash this away. So the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem, and so many people were going out it felt like everybody was doing it. Hundreds of people, maybe thousands of people. Now, if you could go from Jerusalem to where John was, baptizing people in the air like a bird, maybe 20 miles. But if you had to walk it, it would be a very difficult and arduous task. Up to 40 miles, depending on the path you took. Around the mountains, through the valleys, up and down. And then when you got there, you found out that John was crazy. He did wild and crazy stuff. He ate bugs and he dressed in animal skins. And all four of your Gospels in your Bible, all four independent pieces of literature written by four different authors in four different settings at four different times, Josephus, the, the, the Jewish historian, and Mohammed in the Koran, all of them refer to John the Baptist in the exact same kinds of words. Many people looked at John the Baptist and they said of him, maybe Maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe he's the special prophet. Maybe he's the one that's going to open the door to reconnect us to God, to help us deal with our sense of guilt and shame. And everybody was leaving the city and waiting in line to be baptized by John, and they all had a basic question, who are you? Are you the Messiah? This message resonates. It does something deep in me. Are you the prophet we're waiting on? And so John's gospel, in writing about John the Baptist, here's what it says in John chapter 1, verse 26. John the baptizer talking about himself, he said, I baptize, or I dunk, or I clean you with water, but among you stands one you don't know. And he's the one who comes after me. The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. So everybody's looking around saying, who's, who's he talking about? I mean, John the baptizer, you're great, you're a prophet, it does something deep in me. And you're telling me that somewhere, somewhere in the crowd, there's someone that we don't know, and he's greater than you? John says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Then John the disciple, who's writing the Gospel of John, tells us that the very next day, just three verses later, John chapter 1, verse 29, John Chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, John the baptizer saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, look, pay attention. Let this fall on your consciousness. In the old King James, it was, Behold, <laughs> let me have your attention. Look over there. Look. And then he used an interesting turn of phrase. He said, Look, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, in our modern 21st century minds, that phrase loses some of its punch, but in that day, when John spoke those words, and he said to the crowd, look, the one I was talking about, there he is. He is the Lamb of God, and he will take away the sins. Not just that you commit. Not just that Jewish people commit. Not just that the Romans commit but the sins of the whole world. Those words had special meaning. See, that culture, the Jewish culture, for generations, for some 1,500 years, 
They had been trying to manage their sin, their guilt, their shame, their regret, their sense of debt, that they owed themselves a different way, that they'd love to go back in time, but they can't, and undo some stuff. They'd been trying to manage that by sacrificing animals. Now, they knew that wrongs done among humans can't be fully undone when you kill an animal. But in a way to take it seriously, they killed animals, and in the shedding of the blood, there was a letting go, there was a a letting out of that internal, ugh. And they would vicariously let go of their, ah, I regret, I don't want, I want to do it over, I'd love to take it back. They would vicariously let go of that when they would bring something precious, an animal, a costly sacrifice, and that thing would be suffered. Uh, 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 sacrificed, and it would suffer. And as it bled out, they would let go as best as they knew how. There was a transference, if you will, between the animal and the human sense of shame and guilt and debt and regret. And everybody knew that. Everybody understood that. Everybody understood that a lamb, a spotless, priceful, expensive, beautiful lamb was the way we were trying to manage this. But here was John, and he said, listen, 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 listen. Right there, that guy, he's the lamb from God, the lamb of God. He's God's lamb. And he's here to take away the sin. Not simply stand, not simply stand in the place of, not simply to be a representative But to literally, when you read it in the original language it's written in by John the disciple in Greek, literally to lift off and carry away the sin. Wouldn't it be awesome if it were true that your regrets and my regrets, those things that when they come up, they still produce guilt and shame. I have a couple of towns I won't even visit because of this stuff. I'm broken. I won't even visit. When I go there, it brings up too many memories. There are some people's names when they come up. There's just a a sense that you would love to undo it. And here was John saying that Jesus is the lamb that can cover all of that, that sense of debt, and make it go away. What are you going to do to wash away your sin? And here was John offering a lamb, God's lamb, who's going to take away the sins of the world. There was an acknowledgement in that culture of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. If you do wrong, you've got to pay for it. And the only way out of that was through the sacrificial system. But even then, there might be consequences. But here was John saying, here's a lamb in the person of Jesus who's going to lift up off of you And carry away your sin. Jewish sin and Roman sin and European sin and American sin. My sin, your sin. And then Jesus, after that, began to do his ministry. He walked around and he left hints. He said to his disciples, I'm going to be arrested and they're going to kill me. One night he gathered with his closest friends friends and followers, and they celebrated a Passover meal. Again, in that culture, everybody knew what this was. In our culture, here's the one-minute kind of description. It was, a, it, was a remor- it was a memorial of the time when 
The people of Israel were slaves in Egypt. And God was about to deliver them, and he was going to use a terribly fierce tool to make Pharaoh's heart change to let the children of Israel go. And he told the children of Israel, if you don't want to be subjected to this fierceness with which I'm going to liberate you, the pain that can follow it, here's what you have to do. You have to kill one of those lambs. And you need to take its blood and put it on the doorposts and over your, 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 your windows and your doors. And when you do that, as a sign that you trust, I'll take care of you. When the terribleness comes to everybody else, I'll skip over your house. I'll pass over your house. And that's exactly what happened in their history. And so every year on that time, they would get together and celebrate the fact that God made a way through the sacrifice of the lamb for the terribleness that was befalling everybody in the area to skip over them. And so Jesus was with his 12 disciples, and they were celebrating the Passover meal, an annual celebration. And he said the most offensive thing that could ever be said. He said, this Passover meal that we're celebrating, I don't want you to think about that anymore. That's incredibly offensive in that culture. He said, I want you to think that this wine that we're pouring out that typically represents the blood of that lamb, I want you to know something. This wine we're pouring out, that's my blood now. It's like, it's scandalous. It's the kind of thing that they should have taken him out and stoned him over. Oh, and this bread that we're breaking, (laughs) it's no longer, you know, a symbol of God taking care of us. This bread that we're breaking, it's literally my body being broken. You know what that would be like? That would be me like saying, look, I know it's Christmas Eve, or Christmas Eve Eve in our case, at our celebration, but this Christmas Eve Eve, I don't want you to think about Jesus anymore, right? I want you to think about me and how awesome I am. That's exactly what Jesus' words, that's the impact it had on that crowd. It's no longer about the lamb and the lintels and the doorpost. It's now about me. And I'm about to have my blood poured out. Every one of the gospel writers, all four independent pieces of literature, began to talk about this. And the disciples didn't fully understand it, but they thought to themselves, you raised Lazarus from the dead, you healed this person, you spoke the words of light to us, you've included us, you've taught us. We don't know what, we don't know what to think about this, but I guess we're just going to keep hanging around. And over the next few hours, they saw him be crucified, hang on a tree. And they saw his blood pour out. Now, typically in crucifixion, when you're crucified, you die by suffocation. Here's what happens. They put your hands out, your, 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 your legs down, they nail them out, and then you hang, and your body weight, and it begins to put this pressure on your chest cavity. And most people who are crucified die by suffocation. And when the Roman soldiers got tired of waiting for you to suffocate under the weight of your own body and struggling to breathe, they come by and they break your legs so you can no longer prop yourself up to give yourself room to take a breath. And after they would break your legs, you'd be gone. But in this particular experience with Jesus, the Bible says that when the Roman soldier came to break his leg, they discovered that he was already gone. He'd already died. So the Roman soldier pierced his side with a sword. And then the Bible says this unique phrase, that the blood and the water from Jesus poured out. Jesus, the Bible tells us, died from having his blood poured out. And the disciples began to put the pieces of the puzzle together. He didn't suffocate. He poured out his blood, and he poured out his blood, as he said at that meal, this poured out blood is to cover your sins. I don't know if you even believe all the stuff I just said, or if it sounds too remarkable to believe, but this is exactly what Jesus is claiming for himself. And so we must mark him as either a lunatic, 
or he's a liar. Or we might want to just pause and consider whether or not what he's saying is worth considering. Jesus said of himself, I'm the one that can come and wash this sin away. My blood can not only cover it temporarily like the lamb, I can remove it fully. And he asks us to be honest with ourselves and admit that we can't deal with it. I can't deal with it. I don't know how to make that sense of remorse and shame go away. I know that alcohol can't do it. Well, maybe for a while. I know that I can't pick it up and carry it off. So 20 years later, after Jesus, there's a writer by the name of Paul. He hated Christians. He wanted to kill them. He decided to kill all Christians, or at least kill enough to scare the other ones off. And he was almost successful. But he encountered this risen Jesus who said to him, I'm going to use you to share the message of this kind of forgiveness and debt canceling and guilt eradicating and shame removing good news. Paul spends the rest of his days turned completely away from persecuting Christians to trying to help as many people as possible understand it. And so in his writings, there's all kinds of language about the blood of Christ, the covering and the removal process for our sins. So in the book of Colossians to a church at, 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 at Colossae, he writes this letter. We call it Colossians in our Bible. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 on the screen. Here's what it says. He, Jesus, forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Paul had a deep understanding of the power of the blood of Jesus to forgive, to cover, to cancel, to wash. He wasn't the only writer captivated by this Peter, the guy who was sitting there when the bread was broken and the blood was poured and Jesus changes its meaning. Peter writes later in his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 1 on the screen, verse 18, here's what it says. For you know it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life and handed down to you from your ancestors. Peter's saying, you can't buy this. It wasn't wasn't something we could purchase. But it was with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed And these last times for your sake, we got the benefit of seeing it with our own eyes. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. So your faith and hope are in God. Just like he said to the children of Israel, put your faith and hope in what I tell you to do, and when you do it, I'll pass over. He looks at us and he says, put your faith and hope in my son, Jesus. And when you put your faith and trust in me, it may not make logical sense to you. It may not make empirically uh, verifiable sense to you. But if you'll put your faith and trust in my son, Jesus, my lamb, God says to us, I will cover and remove the stain of your sin. That thing that you want to be rid of anyway. The thing that you're trying to cover, and sometimes you've been successful for a period of covering it. But it keeps coming back, that regret. He forgave all our sins. And he canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. 
You know what I mean when I'm talking about that sense of indebtedness that you owe yourself, you wish you could undo. But there's another sense in which you also owe God, the Bible says. But through Christ, we've been forgiven. Our debt has been canceled. It's been carried away. It's been lifted and moved away. Here's what the Bible, in all of its different pieces of literature, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, in Paul's writings, in the other letters, and in the Apocalypse, here's, here's exactly the consistent message. That there's nothing you can ever do or will ever be able to do that will cover your sin, that will wash it away. Nothing but the blood of Christ. So when he died, he canceled your indebtedness and my indebtedness. To God, your indebtedness to yourself, your indebtedness to other people. And because he has forgiven you, you're forgiven. Here's the good news. You don't have to forgive yourself. You don't have to. Because God's not holding that against you anymore. We have to figure out how to rest in that. How to take comfort in that. How to figure out how to do life in light of the fact that our sin has been lifted up and carried away. Jesus said it's not a system. It's not an effort. He said, I'm the answer. Embrace me as the covering. Your effort won't erase your past. You can find a different system to offer you a different set of, of advice. You can find a religion to make you feel good. You can try some mantras. But what the blood of bulls and goats could not do, what my best effort was unable to secure, Jesus came and moved beyond my addiction, my shame, my guilt, and he did for me what I could not do for myself. He declared me forgiven, and he washed, he lifted my sin and carried it away. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. My results have my efforts have resulted in me feeling guilty and shame, a sense of debt, a desire to be forgiven, but never fully, feeling fully clean. But if I could stand Paul on this stage and say, Paul, what can wash away your sin? What can wash away my sin? He would say, the blood of Jesus. If I could ask Peter, Peter, what washed away your sin? What can wash away my sin? He would say, the blood of Jesus. James, Jesus' brother, you lived with him. What can wash away my sin? The blood of Jesus. John, John, you're the one that Jesus entrusted his mother to. What can wash away my sin? The blood of Jesus. And so let me ask you a question. If God doesn't condemn you as his child, as one forgiven by his blood, covered completely, the sin has been lifted and removed, who are you to condemn yourself? Who are you to go back and wallow in that guilt and shame? Who do I think I am to declare myself guilty when Christ has declared me not guilty? Place your trust in Jesus, in his death and resurrection, and experience forgiveness. And spend your life not trying to figure out how to deal with it, but instead figuring out how to live in the forgiveness that's already been purchased for you. And the only way it could be, God himself coming and taking it on, on himself. That is the claim of Christianity. That is what this church offers. 
Not because it's ours to give, but because it was freely given to us. When I acknowledge my forgiveness through the blood of Christ, I'm free. And when I go back and fish in that hole that has all my sins at the bottom of the sea, I'm declaring that I don't trust what my Savior did for me, that it wasn't good enough. And the guilt and the shame comes rolling back in, and God looks at me with loving eyes, and he says, accept what my Son has done for you. It's enough. I'm not asking you to try harder. I'm not simply asking you to get some information. I'm asking you to put your faith and trust in what Jesus did to cover those things you can't get rid of on your own. And the Bible calls that good news. Is it easy? I don't know. If it is for you, you haven't lived the life I lived. It's not easy for me. And yet it's what I long for. It's what I press into. It's what I want for you. It's what I want us to understand and explore. And rather than relishing in our sin and resigning ourselves to those memories and regret, I want us to feel refreshed because the blood of Christ is enough to cover everything you've ever done. It will always be. It always was. And God gives us a choice to put our faith and trust in him and do a ridiculous thing. It sounds ridiculous on one level. Through your death and resurrection and my faith and trust in that, I'm forgiven. So around here, we think that you don't just come to hear biblical truth, but you actually try to move forward with it. So I'm going to give you a chance to do that right now. Would you grab out your Connect card? And let's take a few steps together as a congregation. And while you're doing that, let me just remind you, listen, if you have some failures that are around effort, man, come on. Get up and try again. If it's worth fighting for, it's worth losing over. All right? Get up and try again. If you've had some misinformation, there are some patterns of relating in your family that doesn't work for you anymore, learn a new way. Get rid of those mistakes. But if it's sin, accept Jesus. Accept Jesus. That's what next step A is all about. Around here, every week we do this. We give people a chance to accept Jesus as their Lord, that means the leader, and as their Savior. That word simply means the forgiver, the coverer, the one who lifts the sin and carries it away. And if you'd like to do that, now that you've understood it more clearly, maybe for the first time possibly, as an adult, not as a child, but as an adult, why don't you check the box? In a moment, I'm going to lead you in a prayer that simply acknowledges what you now know and what you're already believing into. God, I'm a sinner and I accept what you've done for me to cover my sin. Check that box. Put it in the offering card or in the offering bucket when it comes by later and we'll send you some information about it. You're not joining our church. You're not, you're not committing to give money. You're not doing anything other than acknowledging that you are a sinner, accepting the grace of God and then you're going to receive some information from us about that. Now how about next step B? You want to get baptized. This is where we simply acknowledge for people that have done what I just talked about. We acknowledge that they're clean, and we engage them in the same thing that John the Baptist was doing, ceremonially, in a ceremonial kind of way, dipping them under and raising them with clean water running on them and washing away all that stuff, just an, a, an outward sign of what we believe is already happening internally. Or how about next step C? I want to join a life group. We're doing this book called Love Does, and it talks about the power of managing this stuff and not letting it be an ending, but a fresh start and a new beginning. I want you to be a part of that. Join a life group. Find one you need to go to, right? How about next step D? 
I wonder if anybody would be honest in the room and say, Ben, I'm having a hard time forgiving myself. It's okay. I get it. Stuff you did mattered, and it's caused pain. But God didn't ask you to forgive yourself. He asked you to put your faith and trust in Jesus. But if emotionally that's where you are, it's okay. Be honest. Check the box. Let us join with you in prayer about this. That the forgiveness that is offered in Christ becomes more tangible to you. And that your own sense of having to cover it begins to fade away. Now how about next step E? I wonder if anybody would say, Ben, I'm not ready to become a Christian right now. But I'm really thinking about it. It's okay. We created a church where you could come and think and reflect, and in your own time and place, ask your questions. We just want to join with you in prayer, give you a chance to be honest. Let's pray about those things right now, and then we're going to worship our great God. Holy Father, I just want to thank you for Jesus today. I want to thank you, Lord, that you have done for me what I have been incapable of doing for myself. You have lifted and carried away my sin. God, that's not an offer you provide for pastors and church leaders or spiritual people. It's, it's an offer that's available to every single person. Your word says that whosoever will, whoever wants, can put their faith and trust in you as the savior of their life, the forgiver of their sin. And so, Lord, I pray right now for folks that are acknowledging they can't cover and wash away their own sin. Only you can. And they're putting their faith and trust in Jesus. God, I pray for those folks in the room right now who are honest and saying, I'm just struggling with being forgiven and understanding it and walking in the freedom that comes from what's already mine. God, would you help them to see your forgiveness and their mistakes, their sins, their failures in light of your forgiveness. Father, we lift up these life groups to you. And I ask that, God, people would be surrounded by folks that can encourage them in the path you've called them to walk. They'd have friends going in the same direction. We lift it all up to you, Jesus, the strong and holy Son of God. Amen. Amen.